Amen. If you would, take your Bible and turn again to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Well, I'm so thankful to be back home, be with you. Dallas, you don't know how much at home it makes me feel, wherever Dallas is, uh, when, you, when, when he prayed, we're fixing to. That's a much better word than we're about to. It's the right way to talk. We've been concluding 1 John chapter 5 for some time now. (laughs) It was Kayla last week. I was getting ready to go out of town and we were having lunch and she said, I love how you opened the first John and you know there's some of us going, come on. And you just have this smile like, nope. <laughs> but friends, I really do think that it's beneficial to meditate on what John has said here in this final verse. And it's why I'm slowing down and considering the attributes of God. And we're, one of the attributes is the incomprehensibility of God. And I thought about preaching that one, but then I thought, oh, they'll think I'll never finish. His attributes just go on and on. Um, But I've been encouraged in studying these things out and in considering John's encouragement in our lives. What a gift um, 1 John is. Um, I know it could be preached better, certainly more eminently, but um, as we've made our way through this text, there have been several times that I've just thought, my word, um, uh, how this this wisdom that God has shown us through His apostle would have impacted a young Jay Clarity. I wish I would have known the truths that are contained in First. I wish we were all in, in dwelt and built with these kinds of uh, of uh, wisdom. But in God's kindness, He gives us wisdom in due season. So, with that in mind, if you would do honor the reading of God's word and stand today as we read again. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is God's word to us today, beloved. Do you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning acknowledging our lack of wisdom. Acknowledging that in so many ways we choose our own path and foolishly rush ahead into life and we do things that do not please you. And we reap consequences that are difficult. You have told us in your word that the way of the transgressor is hard. And there's not one of us here this morning that doesn't assume the title of transgressor. Father, would you be so kind as to inscribe these words to keep ourselves from idols on all of our hearts and not merely in the negative, but in the positive. Might the greater affection of knowing you And realizing the weight of your glory and majesty, might it press into our hearts and lives in such a way that we would live not for the pleasures of this passing life, but for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may may be seated.
sorry, I should have done this first. A prayer for wisdom is often remembered of Solomon. We often hear uh, people inside the body talk about asking for the wisdom of Solomon. And that, of course, is grounded in the narrative that we find in 1 Kings chapter 3. You'll remember these words. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar at Gibeon. The Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept him for You have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to set on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, A great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, And you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. As it turns out, Solomon goes on to write in Proverbs chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What we have in in 1 Kings chapter 3 is a picture of who a wise man is. He begins in his prayer by acknowledging, I don't know how to go out or to come in. The beginning of wisdom And the beginning of knowledge is to humble ourselves in the sight of Almighty God and acknowledge that we operate our lives in a deficit of wisdom. That we fall far short of understanding the world around us. We don't know how to go out or to come in. We don't have wisdom that we need apart from the grace of God. Of God. I, I think that Stephen Sharnock, one of the preeminent Puritan theologians, is most helpful, and I'll be referencing much of what he writes in way of the wisdom of God, and hopefully it will be helpful uh, to you. Uh, somebody once said that um, is Stephen Sharnock and Thomas Watson, if you remember your Puritans, pastored together. And someone once said, what Thomas Watson can say in five words, Stephen Sharnock can say in two volumes. He was a rather long-winded brother. Um, And I think he wrote, uh, if I remember correctly, over 100 and 
40 pages on the wisdom of God, and it is good, biblically grounded uh, wisdom. And, and he, he notes that we count a man wise when he conducts his affairs with discretion and governs his passions with moderation and carries himself with due proportion and harmony in all of his concerns. Friends, don't we live in a day and age where that man is, is seemingly out of, out of reach? That, that we don't find a lot of people um, running for public office or I would contend even leading in the church today that could fit that definition of wisdom even in an earthly sense. So, so what we need to do in understanding wisdom is first to define what does wisdom con- consist of. And if you're a note taker, there are three points here that I, I think would be helpful to you. One, wisdom consists in the acting for the right end. Now we can take this conversely and find that the mark of foolishness is to do things randomly and without an aim. We don't even have the, the end in mind. We just do things. We find this in the babbler who, who just says something to say something but doesn't have a point. Have you been in those conversations? No, where somebody's talking and you are just like, get to the point, brother. Some of you are thinking of my preaching right now and that's okay. They see it in so many of our own hasty actions. Beloved, if we look to our past and our decision making, every one of us here today have to to come to a woe is me moment and acknowledge that we act without an end in mind. But friends, God doesn't act that way. He acts in wisdom and He sees the end for which He acts in all of His decrees. Secondly, Wisdom consists of considering all circumstances for the action. What this means is that uh, wisdom considers not only the primary effect of the decision, but also the secondary effect. How will this particular decision impact the problem or the dilemma that we face? But not only that, how will it impact those who are impacted by that primary effect? I don't know about you, but when I go to make a decision, there's not always clarity about what the second impacts are going to be. But the wonder and the grandeur of Almighty God is not only does He see the circumstance surrounding the primary and the secondary, He sees the causes that flow out of everything that follows. His knowledge is so vast and so great that there's nothing that escapes His gaze. That there's nothing that, that, that when God makes a decree... And there is a theological battle and has been for uh, generations now about the decrees of God and and how exacting are they and how absolute are they. And and my encouragement to you is to believe that our God is absolutely sovereign and what He says will come to pass will come to pass. And there's not been one moment where He has decreed something and then shown up a few thousand years later and gone, I didn't see this outworking of my particular exercise of wisdom he sees all of the circumstances and he acts wisely in decreeing all things that come to pass in light of all of the circumstances that he not only knows but beloved he intends he causes so wisdom consists in acting for the right end in considering all of the circumstances for the particular action, but also it consists in willing and acting according to the right reason and the right judgment of all things. How often do we struggle with things, again, that are not clear and we lack information and we lack insight and it's difficult for us to have wisdom in the way that we should go because there are so many unknowns. We, we come to a particular problem and we make a decision, but often, if you're in leadership, you will make a decision and then you will come to a question of, did I see everything that was involved here? Did I make right judgment of what I could see? But 
God doesn't struggle with that problem. Not only does He see all of the circumstances, but He has all of the appropriate and right judgments in every case. And that is why we can rejoice when we read Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the... Now here's the, here's the reality. And I'm just going to pause. This is a, a, an unannotated excursus. But when we come to that word predestined, and oh my friends, the theological football that that word has been over the generations. Now it's not hard to define what that word means. It's just hard to swallow what that word means. But it's only hard to uh, swallow what that word predestined means if you have a light and tepid view of the wisdom of God. But if God, in fact, does act with the right end, considering all of the circumstances for the action, with all of the right reasons and all of the right judgments, then predestination is not an affront, it's a comfort. End of excursus. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. God chooses the best that could ever be done in due season and to the right end. That is why the writer of Deuteronomy could say, The rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without inequity. Just and upright is He. Beloved, He acts, He decrees in wisdom. And so the question then, in light of that wisdom that acts for the right end, that considers all of the circumstances, and that is exercised according to the right reason and the right judgment of all things, where do we see this? Where can we observe the wisdom of God? There are three areas where we can observe the wisdom of God. First, in creation. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, writes in Proverbs 3, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding He established the heavens. By His knowledge the the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. We see in creation the wisdom of God. But we also see creation in our generation as a display of the foolishness of the world. And what do I mean by that? I mean this. The Bible tells us clearly that the heavens declare the glory of God. They declare that our God is a wise God. That He has in fact acted for the right ends considering all of the circumstances and according to the right reason and the right judgment. We can look at all of creation and see beauty and symmetry. Uh, friends, uh, the, the week that I was away from here, uh, Sarah and I were in Louisville and we got to experience this wonderful season. It's called fall. You'll remember, it's my favorite day of the year here. Um, absolutely love the changing of the, of the, the color of, of the trees and, and the, the beauty uh, and, and what God communicates through His creation. Uh, somebody posted to Facebook a couple of weeks ago that the trees are about to teach us something wonderful that it's okay to let things go. And I thought that that's just, that's fantastic wisdom that we can get even through creation. But, but that wonder and beauty declare that there is a Creator God. I, I saw um, within the past week uh, a, one of those diagrams of, of, of the human uh, body and with cross sections of all of the organs. And, and at the bottom it said something to the effect of this is the most complex machine that is on the face of the planet today, and yet there are those who will tell you there is no Creator. And friends, that is what I mean by the, the, the fact that the, the glory and the wisdom of God are displayed in creation, but creation as it turns out in our rebellion has been the very, the very issue where humans have, have, have disclosed their greatest folly. Because though the heavens declare the glory of God and even the the creation of the human person and the body declare that there is a Creator, 
Humanity rises up and says there is no God. Friends, one of the the confounding realities of our day is that we speak about having freedom and we speak about having autonomy and living lives uh, for our own pleasure. But we live in a generation that doesn't even acknowledge the beauty of the complementarity that God has created in humanity. The, the, the symmetry and the wonderment of the reality that He has created us male and female. And that marriage is a good gift to humanity. And that sexual expression inside of marriage is a good gift to humanity. And instead, we have traded that in for our own wisdom saying, you know, well, you can be what you want to be. I, I mean, we are so foolish that we deny the clarity of binary gender. And some of you are going to say, what is binary gender? It means boys are boys and girls are girls. Let me tell you, our, our, our society is not growing in wisdom. And it's on the front page of every newspaper and it comes out in so many areas of our lives. We have always since the fall sought out our own way and we're just getting better at that exercise, not resting in the wisdom of God that we can see in creation. The, the, the f- foolishness of man is to ignore the reality that God has created the heavens and the earth and even our persons with a purpose and with beauty and with symmetry. And we've traded all of that in for language of equity, sameness, n- not b- having any variation. Friends, I'm glad there's variation. I just want you to know this morning, I praise God that in His wisdom, my wife doesn't look like me. I mean, right, fellas? Amen. That our brides, that there is variation in the the, the created order. But our generation has puffed itself up so much in its own wisdom, which is really folly to say that God isn't wise in that way, that He's heavy-handed and He's restraining the real joy of those that He has created. Creation displays, in fact, though, the wisdom of God. It gives us an occasion to display our own foolishness if we're not careful. We also find God's wisdom in the governing of His creation. Now again, let's borrow from Genesis chapter 3 and the reality, I think I've shared with you all, uh, that, that early on I had a, a colleague here who would accuse me all the time, Jay, you always bring things back to Genesis chapter 3 like that's the problem everywhere in our lives. Yep, absolutely. That is the problem. Um, When we think about that particular problem that we um, were plunged into rebellion and that none does good, no, not one, and that we all seek out our own way, Friends, what if we really did have unfettered freedom? What if there was no restraint? We think about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Do do you remember that whole narrative? And the question is, how was Pharaoh's heart hardened? It was hardened through freedom. God merely gave Pharaoh over to who he was by nature. And he hardens himself because our hearts are hard, but rather we see that after the fall, instead of just letting everything go, God governs His creation providentially and eminently. He he governs us providentially in the fact that He is sovereign over all of the affairs of men. And as R.C. Sproul would say, there's not one maverick molecule in all of the universe. And isn't that great? To know that you have a God who loved you enough to send His only begotten Son that if you would believe in Him, you would have everlasting life. And that same God is the God who is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over our diagnoses, over our family relationships, over our finances, over our political systems, over everything that happens under the sun. Our God is sovereign. So we see Him working providentially, but we also see Him governing over His creation in exacting laws, in telling us how we should live. Wisdom, the wisdom of God was not lost at the fall. The wisdom of God was not undone and has never been undone by our rebellion. And we should give God praise for that. 
Because we see Him coming to His people. And not leaving them without understanding and not leaving them without wisdom, but in fact parting and imparting and giving laws that would rightfully help them to live in a world where their hearts are broken and sinful. He rules over all of creation, in fact, in this way. In Exodus chapter 20, and this is a rather lengthy passage, but I think it's helpful because often this is what I hear in the church today, that the law somehow, we should be suspicious of it. Uh, We'll get to this. We're not finding salvation in the law, but we should see the reality that, that, that the law of God delivered to the people of God is the wisdom and the love of God. That the law should not be spoken of in a way that we and that we undermine it, and, and that we degrade it, and that we think that, that the God who has exacted this law is doing something for the detriment of, a, of His people, but rather He is governing for His own glory and the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Exodus chapter 20, you'll remember, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, for I the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall, not make, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock. Doesn't he know us? I mean, there's the list because he knows you shall not work. Yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what? Yeah, yeah, but, but I mean, like a child. And he loves us enough to, to clarify, or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner within your gates. For, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land, and that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything in your neighbor. That is your neighbor's. We see these particular commandments, these laws, this governing of God over creation. And we see that... a. A a, a loving, wise God is moving in the direction of sinful people who would break all of those commandments, and we have. But He he does so in a way that is a, a grace to us, restraining the evil that is in our hearts. Now again, this doesn't give us salvation. The law teaches us that we've all become unprofitable. That we've all pierced the law in some sense, and so we own all of it. The law doesn't bring us salvation. We can't earn our way into the graces of God. But the law, in fact, is a grace in pointing us to the one who does grant us salvation and the one who has lived to fulfill all of the moral imperatives of the law. We find that we see the wisdom of God displayed in creation, the wisdom of God displayed in His providential and His imminent governing of the affairs of men. And we can be thankful that there are laws. That the reason that every society upon the face of the earth has some system of law is because that law, the, 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 the impulse for a restraining law has been written into our conscience as human beings. What a grace that is. What a, well, how wise. Because here's the reality. Think about a world where there is no law. Think about that. Now, some people want to legislate that, which is a... Anyway. But, but the reality is that we would just devour one another. 
And the entire world would be consumed with our own passions and we would all be at war with one another if God wasn't restraining humanity in its lost state in His governance. So, so those are two ways. And I want you to just put a bookmark there as, as we walk through quickly some categories of what the wisdom of God looks like. Here's the reality. God is wise. We are not. And so if we're going to come to understand that all wisdom flows from God, we need to see how wisdom is uniquely particular to God alone. That when we get into a conversation, and it's clearly proven that God has spoken in His Word truth, and somebody comes along with something that contradicts what God has said, we don't need to deliberate long over it. We need to just rest in the reality, well, God is wise, and there's a whole world full of fools. Ourselves included. God's wisdom is particular to Him. And here are, I think, seven ways that we see the particularity of God's wisdom. God is wise necessarily. That is that deity and wisdom go hand in hand. God could not be God if He was not wise. If He didn't express and have all of the wisdom of the universe. Secondly, wisdom is original to God. We gain wisdom by our years. And as I thought through that this week, immediately what crept into my mind. Some of you will remember Paul Harvey often said, years don't always add wisdom, but they always add perspective. That is that we often gain wisdom with years, but there are foolish older people. Uh, We have to glean wisdom over a lifetime, but God has never searched for or grown in wisdom. God doesn't need a counselor. God doesn't need instruction. God doesn't need to to just step up His wisdom game. All wisdom exists in His person. Isaiah chapter 40, Whom did He consult? And who made Him understand? Who taught Him the path of justice? And taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? And the answer to that question is nobody. He is originally wise. Also, God is wise perfectly. There's never a cloud of doubt or uncertainty around Him. Job chapter 4, verse 18 tells us a very interesting uh, statement. And, And that is that the angels that look into God's created uh, universe and, and perceive His wisdom and who are before Him night and day and who minister to Him and who are messengers for Him and all of their experience, even they, in comparison to God, don't have perfect wisdom. Job chapter 4, verse 18, even in His servants He puts no trust and His angels He charges them with error. If you'll remember Peter's writing in Peter chapter 1, he says, considering this salvation, now think about this. Think about the salvation that we have been given in Christ. And Peter says, considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving, not themselves, but you, in the, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from the heaven. Things into which the angels long to look. I mean, if we think back to the reality of Christ's birth, being born incarnate, and God with us, Emmanuel, in Luke chapter 2, and we're heading into that season where we celebrate Christmas, and we think about the reality that there is displayed the fullness of the wisdom of God, the perfect wisdom of God, and the angels long to look into these realities. The angels long to look into the reality of salvation that we have been granted. God's wisdom is absolutely perfect. God's wisdom is also universal. We can be wise in maybe one or two areas. Our wives might dispute that altogether. Um, We can be wise for a season. 
But God is wise universally in every area. There's nothing that escapes His view. God is also wise perpetually. Earlier I said wisdom comes with age, but it also can slip away in our years. We often talk about having lapses of judgment or lapses of wisdom. That means that we succumb to the temptation that is laid before us and we act in foolishness, not wisdom. But God has perpetually acted in wisdom. Job chapter 12. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Also, He is wise incomprehensibly. Psalm 92 verse 5. How great are Your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. There, is, there are times in our lives, are there not, that, that we don't comprehend what the Lord is doing and we are tempted to think, God, are You really wise in this area? The deficiency with understanding is not in God. It's in our finite minds. He is incomprehensibly wise. And we're told that in Romans chapter 3, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. God is incomprehensible in His wisdom. He is also infallible. Satan believed that he was acting wisely in tempting Adam and Eve. That he was going to usurp the position of God and that in God's created order, he was going to get humanity to ultimately praise Him for all of eternity. What a fool Satan is. But we find that when God speaks, when He created everything that He created and He put the tree in the center of the garden and He had understanding and wisdom of what that meant, everything that He did to that point ultimately had its full purpose and effect. And as God has continued to reveal His will and wisdom to humanity through His Word, through His apostles and prophets throughout time, Every one of the words that God has spoken ultimately will return to Him. It will not fail. Satan will fail. His schemes will fail. But God's purposes, His decrees, His counsels will endure forever. And that's what Isaiah tells us in chapter 55. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall shall not return to me empty, but it shall, it shall, it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Our God is infallibly wise. Now, beloved, as we face that reality that we have a wise God, I want you to ask an honest question in your heart. Knowing all of His judgment and all of His reasons are right and He considers all of the outcomes and He acts for the right ends. The question is, do we always perceive the wisdom of God and the providence of God? Do we always look at what is going on politically and economically and sociologically and psychologically and in our families and all of the ecclesiastical struggles and we, do we go... Boy, that's wisdom. Or do we go, um, Lord, have you missed something here? Is there something that maybe, you know, if we just didn't have to deal with Catholic doctrine in the providence of God, that'd be great. Those errors, if we didn't have to wrestle through those, if there weren't heresies that were leveled against the church, man, that would make ministry so much easier. Do we see that oftentimes in our own understanding, we think that that really the problem in our world is circumstantial? Now I want you to put in the back of your mind that part of the component of wisdom is to see all of the circumstances. And I want us to consider what Solomon says in his... Now remember, this is the the guy that has asked God for wisdom and God says, I'm going to give you wisdom in a way that nobody after you will have wisdom. And he says in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, verse 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? 
In this world, often our wisdom is to think that if God would just straighten out the circumstances as we see them, everything that would be okay. But the real problem we face is that we misdiagnose the problem when we look at the providence of God. We think it is our crooked circumstance that need redemption, but really it is the wisdom of God not to straighten out our circumstances, but to straighten out our depraved hearts. We are the ones that need to be straightened out. You remember those words from growing up? And you get in trouble and your dad or your mom would say, boy, I'm going to straighten you out. I thought that was like my anthem for years. They never succeeded, by the way. But God one day will, by His grace. And friends, in all of that, I want you to see that there's one last place where we see the wisdom of God. And that's in our redemption. God displays His wisdom in creation. He displays His wisdom in His governing of the affairs of men providentially and eminently in giving His law. But He displays His greatest and most glorious wisdom in the redemption of our souls. And this is why Paul brings wisdom to bear in his doxology at the end of Romans chapter 11. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 11, now would be a great time. Romans chapter 11 and verse 33 through 35, we, we find this exclamative phrase. And I can't remember who it was, but one of the brothers that I read through this week said that this is the greatest exclamation throughout all of the economy of inspiration. that This is the crescendo. This is the heart expression of, of look at all that God has done when He says, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid. So we have to ask the question, when, 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 when Paul exclaims, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, what is he referring to in that doxology? What is he, he pointing at? And some will say that what, what, what Paul is saying there, what he is giving a doxology over, is chapter 11 onward. But beloved, and I think that's true, but it's broader than that because I want you to remember Paul didn't work with chapter numbers and verse numbers. Paul worked under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he's making a point from the first verse of chapter 1 all the way to this doxology. And my argument would be that all of it is being praised. All of God's wisdom. And so, we have to ask, what's going on here? Well, what's going on is that Paul, for 11 chapters of his writing has been expounding doctrine. He's been pointing out the realities of what God has been up to. And there's a, another excursus here, I think, that needs to be handled, and that is, some have argued, William Barclay being one of them, that, that these verses in Romans chapter 11 are not to be taken with a literal uh, sense. And, and what is really going on here is... Paul is just having an emotional catharsis. And so we just have to see it as poetry and that's it. We really can't understand what he's talking about. Remember that our God always, always, always informs our mind so that we know how to worship Him. And this doxology being rooted at the end of 11 chapters of clear, wonderful, although hotly debated, Doctrine is not an emotional catharsis. It is an expression of joy over a, an apostle who has had his mind transformed and now his affections are raised in worship in the appropriate ways. So where does Paul start? Where, where, where do we get the beginning of this particular wisdom and, and praise I want you to turn back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul says, 
under the inspiration of the Spirit again. Don't ever forget that. So I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are at Rome. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. Verses 33 through 35 of chapter 11 are rooted in verse 15 through 17 of this passage. What what Paul is saying is that our justification, the wisdom of God, is expressed that our redemption comes not by sacerdotal ministry of priests and popes, Not by the good works that you walk in. Not by your own effort to keep the law. Not by your own morality to try and measure up to the independent fundamentalist Baptist crowd. Your salvation comes by grace alone, in Christ, by, excuse me, by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is the wisdom of God. So you'll have to excuse me for the rest of my ministry, however long that may be. That if someone says, well, what, what, it's not that big of a deal if we have a small part in our salvation. Oh, you fool. The wisdom of God was to save you for His own glory and by His own decree, not by anything in you. And you should be ashamed if you think otherwise. Because you are believing something that is contrary to the wisdom, not of a bunch of theologians who have defended it, but contrary to the God who has laid it before broken sinners. Friends, we are so foolish, are we not? How many times have we devised schemes in our own minds that will please God through our actions alone? That that taking a glance at Jesus and all that He did to secure our redemption, then we pivot and we say, yeah, but if we do just one more bake sale. And I'm not picking on bake sales, so don't write me an email. Or if I do just, if I give just a little bit more, man, then God will be pleased. Beloved, believe this with everything in your being. God is pleased by the redemptive work of His Son. Period. We add nothing to it but our own sin. We qualify ourselves that way. And it is all that we have when we come to Him. Our salvation, let me say it again, is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to the glory of God alone. So in that, there is one place preeminently that we look to find wisdom. And we're given a clue in Colossians chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want wisdom, beloved, don't look to Solomon, look to Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul writing here. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of that which we preach to save those who believe. For, God, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called. He doesn't say to the whole world. He says to those who are called. If you want to edit that out, that's between you and a wise God. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Little children, when it comes to your understanding of how you are saved, keep yourselves from idols, because the wisdom of God 
is ever before us in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ and His grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you as fools today, not fully grasping all that you have done for us and worshiping tritely in so many ways. But Father, we know you are wise and you have completed redemption. You are the one who does it. You work in us to bring us to an awareness of our sin. You regenerate our hearts. You call us by the power of the working of your Spirit. You turn us and convert us to Christ. And for those of us who are gathered here today in the name of Christ, who are in Christ, we know that that is true. Might we worship not in a foundation of our own works, our religion, our morality, but might we stand in Christ alone for Your glory. And Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know You, would You display Your wisdom and Your glory and Your mercy by bringing them to a saving knowledge of Your Son? Father, might You grant the greatest of wisdom to fallen humanity, and that is repentance, a turning to You. Father, would we live in light of the wisdom of the doctrine that Paul and all of the apostles and prophets teach until we stand before You face to face and until all of the providential questions we have are worked out and we ascribe to You for all of eternity that You are originally, preeminently, perfectly, universally our wise God. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing it as well.